day, I went out to the Honda Civic in the garage, and I lifted up on the, the car door, the back driver's side, and it didn't open. I, nothing happened. We didn't smash the side of it. It just decided not to open anymore, and it still won't open. Uh, recently, the webcam on my laptop just decided to stop working. Uh, I had put on Windows 10, and all of a sudden, it just didn't work. It wouldn't turn on. And so Jim, my brother-in-law, he was over at our house, and he fixed it. And he said I was missing something, and so thank you, Jim, if you can hear me. But um, that was frustrating me. Years ago, my brother Chris and I were playing in a mini golf tournament at the Water's Edge. Have you heard of the Water's Edge over at Burden Hand? And, and so we're playing with two other friends, and, and we're all competitive, so we wanted to win this thing. So even if it's a mini golf tournament. And so in the middle of the tournament, out of nowhere, Chris develops this little twitch in his, in his putting stroke. And so he started missing, I did talk to him about this, that I could share this. He started missing close putts. And we're like, come on, Chris, like you got to stop. But it, he couldn't get it. My brother is a great athlete. I mean, he was a three-sport athlete in high school And uh, he just could not get this glitch out. He actually switched and started putting right-handed, and and he's left-handed. That's how bad it got. So completely just weird, out of nowhere, why don't things work the way that they're supposed to work? Think about your marriage. Isn't something a little off with your marriage? Maybe a lot off? What's wrong? Every marriage begins with the tools needed to implode Doesn't that sound romantic? And I think I do uh, premarital counseling. This is wonderful. So, but it's true. It's true. Husband and wife bring into marriage things that can destroy their marriage. Last week I explained that the purpose of marriage is to magnify God's awesomeness and portray the gospel. Do you want your marriage to magnify and glorify God more? It can, but you must be vigilant Vigilant for anything in your marriage that distracts from God's glory. You must be ready to face these things head on. Last week I said, if you want God to revitalize your marriage, you need to be honest about the areas of your marriage that are weak and sick. Something is wrong with your marriage, my marriage, and we need to face it and we need to work through it. If we do, greater joy, I promise you, greater joy is around the corner. The other week our shower faucet just all of a sudden decided not to, to give cold water, but just to give hot water. And uh, Christina actually had to transport cold water from downstairs just to give Peter a bath. So, so we needed a plumbing hero. And so I called Kevin Havice, who's not even here, you know, for, for me to give it to him. But anyway, uh, Kevin came over and Kevin was able to help make sense of it. The, the unit kind of scared me. He opened it up. It seemed quite simple then after he was able to explain things. We got the replacement part, and it works really nicely now. Through his word, God is able to help you assess and understand what's wrong with your marriage and provide you with the grace to work through some things so that your marriage can work better and you can enjoy it more. I'm thankful for Kevin Havice. And imagine how thankful you will be to God, for God, when he helps you fix some of the problematic areas in your marriage. We're not in Eden anymore. We got kicked out. 
But that's not the end of the story. There is hope for you and me outside of Eden. There is hope for our marriage outside of Eden. But we need to have the courage to face what's wrong with us and what's wrong with our marriage. If it meant increased joy for you and your spouse and that God would get more glory, would you be willing to face what's wrong in your marriage and work through it together? If you can honestly answer yes, God will increase your joy in marriage. The goal of this series is to help you find more joy in God so that you can find more joy in your marriage and God gets more glory in your joy. Joy in God is ultimately the goal. So if you want to maximize your joy, we must completely uh, be completely committed to uh, facing the reality of where we actually are and looking to God's grace to change us. Let's get the real story. What really happened to marriage? Number one, God gave Adam and Eve an incredible life and marriage. Genesis 1.28 says, and God blessed them. Life was very good for Adam and Eve. God made it very good. Think about their incredible life. They were alive and bearing the image of the Almighty God. Their thinking was rational, intelligent, and clear. They made good choices, and then they got to enjoy the rewards of making those good choices. God loved them. They loved God. They loved each other. Dominion over planet Earth was theirs. The waters, the mountains, the valleys and plains, the vegetation, natural resources, excuse me, breathtaking sunrises and sunsets, a brilliant light show every night in the nighttime sky. Uh, The animal kingdom in all of its glory was theirs to enjoy. All was theirs to manage, keep, and enjoy. Adam and Eve were scholars of science and discovery. Their work was meaningful, productive, and fun. They were successful. They were never frustrated, never overloaded or stressed. They ate really well, they slept really well, and they enjoyed Sabbath rest and relaxation. Their marriage was awesome. They happily carried Uh, out their God-given roles and complemented each other perfectly. They delighted in true intimacy. They enjoyed loving and exciting and selfless sex. They anticipated children. They had no shame, regret, stress, anxiety, unmet expectations or disappointments. Their life together was incredible. Incredible. Are your life and marriage like that? Mine are not. Mine are not. Even though I've loved my life, mine are not. What's wrong with our marriages? Number two, obedience to God's commands preserved Adam and Eve's incredible life and marriage. In order for Adam and Eve to continue to enjoy their incredible life and marriage, they needed to perfectly obey God. His, his good commandments. The universe was God's. Authority was God's. His laws were excellent and good and practical and helpful. God made the good boundaries clear. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for. And so God is going to actually explain the rationale behind his command. Here it is. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. His law was beneficial, worthy, and protective. Now, we've all been given 
Uh, we've all probably in, in the past given our kids these type of dietary restrictions. Okay, kids, when we walk by the trail, do not eat the pretty berries. That's bad. Do not just go and make yourself a, you know, a mushroom dish from the mushrooms in the backyard. This is bad. That's good. Dietary restrictions are good. For every no of God, there is also always a yes of God. A yes. What was the yes in God's restriction of the one tree? If they obeyed God perfectly, they would live. Life. Life was the yes. Obey and live. God's no to the one tree was a yes to life itself. Theologians call this the covenant of works. God made a covenant with Adam, an agreement. Obey and enjoy life. Disobey and suffer death. Clear. Simple, really good to know, a law that actually preserved the life that God himself gave. Please, please consider this. Do you believe that God's prohibitions reduce your joy in life or increase your joy in life? Listen to Psalm 19, 7 through 11 to inf- hopefully inform your answer. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Reward. When God says no, it is infinitely good. When God says yes, it is infinitely good. Do you trust God? It will go very, very well for you if you trust God. But understand, there is a serious threat. Satan is running a smear campaign against God in order to make him look like a stifling killjoy. Like he wants to take something from you. Satan hates God, which brings us to number three. Satan wanted to destroy Adam and Eve's incredible life and marriage because he hates God. The ultimate purpose of your marriage is to magnify God's awesomeness. How do you think Satan feels about marriages that magnify God's awesomeness? He hates them. He targets them. He'll do whatever he can to distract you from brightly shining God's glory as a married couple. Genesis 3 is where Adam and Eve's incredible life and marriage were threatened. A crafty serpent spoke. That's creepy. When the the serpent said to Eve, or, or what the serpent said to Eve, should have concerned her more than the fact that the serpent was actually speaking. It was a new universe, you know, awesome stuff were happening, was ha- were happening that, that uh, God had created and made, and they were just experiencing this for the first time. It's what he said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent was questioning God and cleverly modifying what God had said, twisting it on its head. 
God didn't say Adam and Eve couldn't eat from any tree. In fact, he said the opposite. Eat from every tree of the garden. Enjoy yourselves, but don't eat from the one tree. Satan was crafty, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God wanted them to savor the fruit from all the other trees. Now, Revelation 12, verse 9 and 20, verse 2 refer to Satan as that ancient serpent. Satan had possessed the serpent, and his question was rather loaded. Think about it. Eve couldn't give a straight yes because the serpent had changed what God had said. A straight no might have implied that God didn't restrict anything, and Satan could have possibly followed with, okay then, so you can eat from every tree. He was trying to confuse her, to trip her up. Eve answered the servant, and in verses 4 and 5 are where Satan's evil agenda is more fully expressed. Eve clarified what God had said, the command, in verses 2 and 3, but notice Satan didn't respond, God never said that. No. He knew what God had said, so he simply changed the result of eating. Listen to how slick he was. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, Satan was trying to convince Eve that God was keeping something good from her. He lied and he promised three things, enlightenment, equality, and experience. He promised enlightenment. Your eyes will be open. Eve... If you eat, you will see what God is keeping from you. You'll be able to see that, Eve. He promised equality. You will be like God. Adam and Eve were created in God's image after his likeness, so in that sense, they were already like God. But that's not what Satan meant. I think he meant be just like God. Equality. Know what God knows. He promised experience, knowing good and evil. Satan made it like Eve was ignorant, when in reality, Eve was simply innocent. He appealed to her desire to be intelligent, her desire to be informed, but in reality, the knowledge that he spoke of was an experiential knowledge and would mean Eve would taste evil. Satan is masterful at using deceptive marketing to sell us death and destruction buried in layers of cheap thrills. You will not surely die. That's the biggest lie in life. Come on. It's a lie that calls God a liar. It hides the truth or at least makes it look undesirable, bamboozles you and leads you to think that you're actually making the better choice in the matter. Satan is the master of propaganda. In John 8, Jesus said the devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's true. That's true. Ted Bundy, you might have known the name from the 1970s. He was a notorious American serial killer. Uh, one article said this, quote, Bundy was known to have been physically attractive, well-educated, and charismatic, causing his victims to have a false sense of trust in him. End of quote. 
That's what Satan does. He, he presents this attractive option to lure you in. He lies to you. He builds false trust, and then he kills you. Eve didn't need the serpent's help to interpret God's word. She should have thrown a rock onto the head of Satan to, to kill the serpent for blaspheming God. But no, she paused. She pondered. She considered. She worked it over in her mind. She listened. Folks, your marriage is a precious gift of God. How brightly it can shine the glory of God. How brightly it can shine the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Satan wants to snuff it out. Satan wants to silence it. Satan wants to kill your marriage. What lies is Satan whispering in your ear? Are you pausing? Are are, are you listening Are you considering his option? Let me tell you what's wrong with your marriage. Let me tell you what's wrong with my marriage. It's really quite simple. Sin. Sin. Our marriages don't work the way that they're supposed to because of the sinful nature in us. Number four. Sin-contaminated men, women, marriage, and everything. How many of you remember the Exxon Valdez oil spill of 1989? Pretty massive. The Exxon Valdez oil tanker struck the Prince William Sound's Bly Reef off the coast of Alaska, and um, it ended up spilling millions of gallons of crude oil into the ocean. The spill eventually covered 11,000 miles of ocean and decimated wildlife, and And sin is like that. One collision with God's law resulted in widespread contamination that couldn't be reversed. It was impossible for Adam and Eve to clean up their mess. That one taste was a collision with God that resulted in universal contamination of sin for humanity. Eve found the fruit attractive, appealing, She wanted it, yet one taste changed everything. Verse 6 says, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Death came through one simple taste. A little bit more serious than a minute on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. Have you heard that? This is a little bit more serious than that. Eating the forbidden fruit was bad. But was it really that bad? Come on. A piece of fruit? If your son stole an apple from your neighbor's orchard, you wouldn't kill him, right? That's a bit, that's a bit strong. Here's, here's why it was really bad. God is infinitely holy. Any defiance of God is infinite treason and deserves, you got to get that word, deserves death. Any little bit of deviance from God's will is infinite treason because God is an infinitely holy God. And that deserves death. Death is the only punishment that fits the crime. It's simple. Adam and Eve deserve to die because they disobeyed God. And I want you to think about something. Eve was deceived 
Eve ate first, yet Eve's name is mentioned only four times in the Bible. And Adam's name is mentioned at least 21 times. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Verse 14 mentions the transgression of Adam. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die. Why not Eve? Come on, she did it first. Adam was God's appointed representative of humanity. He bore the weight of sin. The responsibility of sin. Adam was Eve's husband, her protector, her spiritual leader, her head. Genesis 3, 6 says she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. He was with her and he didn't stop her? No. Hit the fruit out of her hand. What are you doing touching that fruit? We need to have a family conference here. This is not going well, Eve. Didn't you hear what I told you? What God had perhaps told you? Because he told Adam and maybe he related. Didn't we discuss this? Adam, why didn't you protect your wife? Why didn't you help her discern the lie of this slick serpent? Why didn't you love her? Why didn't you let, why did you let her eat? Adam was passive. He just stood there. What was he doing? You got to get in the game, dude. You can't let this happen to your wife and your family. He stood there and did nothing. When men are spiritually passive, bad things happen. He watched, he ate, Adam rebelled against God and he failed to do what one study note suggests, guard or keep both the garden and the woman that God had created as a helper fit for him. Adam failed as a spiritual leader. His role was to lovingly lead and protect and encourage his wife, but he chose to just stand there and be inactive. By his inactivity and his activity, he passed guilt, sin, and death to his posterity. When Adam sinned, it fundamentally changed human nature. He passed guilt on to everybody. (laughs) After Adam sinned, no one is born good or with a blank slate. Everyone is born with guilt and has an entirely corrupt and sinful nature with only an inclination to evil. This is called original sin. The idea that every person is born with a sinful nature and deserves God's just judgment. Another important theological term is total human depravity, which Theopedia defines as, quote, the consequence of the fall of man, that, quote, every person born into the world is morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, and is, apart from God's grace, utterly unable to choose to follow God or choose to return to Christ in faith for salvation, end quote. Everyone is born a slave to sin, dead in sin. Everyone. The Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that we do not have good intentions. We do not have a good heart. We are not good people. God said in Genesis 2, 17, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, God meant several things. 
they would die physically, but obviously not immediately. Adam lived for 930 years, so it took him a little while, but eventually he died physically. God meant that they would die spiritually, that their soul would lose spiritual life and they would merit, they would earn eternal hell through their treason. And I believe that Adam and Eve are actually in heaven by faith in Jesus Christ, the coming of the Messiah, Genesis 3.15, and we'll get to that later. But the spiritual death they suffered meant their human nature deserved God's just judgment. The spiritual death is also meant that, um, or means that immediately their mind, their will, and their affections all became dead in sin. Not free in bondage, not free enslaved, not alive, dead, entirely contaminated by sin. Ephesians 2 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And Paul said to the Ephesians that they were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of mankind, children of wrath, apart from the grace of God. I wish we had time to dig into these passages more, but here are a few big ones that I just want to prove to you what the Bible says about the evilness of your own heart and my own heart. This is original sin, and this is total human depravity. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Genesis 8, 21, the Lord said in his heart, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. David in Psalm 51, 5 said, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58, 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. Ecclesiastes 9, 3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said in Mark 7, 21 through 23, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus said that. Sometime read Romans 3. Paul said that both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks are under sin. And he quoted a bunch of Old Testament verses to make the point that absolutely no one is righteous, no one understands, or seeks for God, no one does good. 1 John 1, 8 and 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Human nature is entirely corrupt. You and I are entirely corrupt apart from the grace of God. And that's what's wrong with your marriage. That's what's wrong. You and your spouse are sinners because your nature is sinful. You want to do bad things. And sometimes when we hurt each other on this, I, I didn't mean to, oh, yes, you did. Yes, you did mean to hurt because you're a sinner with a sinful nature and a sinful heart. 
when we got married, we should have expected that our spouse would sin against us often. And as much as we should strive for holiness, we should have expected that we would sin against our spouse. Every problem that ever was in your marriage originated from a sinful heart. After Adam and Eve ate, Genesis 3, 7 says, then the eyes of both were open, but it wasn't the enlightenment that they had hoped for and that they had expected. Here's what's happened. For the first time, they felt shame. They realized that they were naked and they started making clothes out of leaves. For the, for the first time, they felt afraid. In their nakedness, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. For the first time, their sin led them to try to justify themselves. Instead of humbly confessing, Adam just shifted the blame to God and to Eve. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Sin changed Adam and Eve. So God cursed the serpent and Satan and God cursed humanity, and the curses should help you understand why marriage doesn't work right. To Eve, this is what God said, Genesis 3.16, And I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. That explains the vomiting in the delivery room yelling. Uh, but here's the kicker. God said, Christine is awesome though, you should see her in the delivery room, but you really shouldn't see her in the delivery room. God, God said to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Ah, there. Their marriage was awesome, but because of sin, Eve began to have an unholy desire for Adam. A craving to oppose and control him rather than trust him and follow his loving lead. Shame and fear would drive her to distrust Adam and to clutch for power to be in charge, which opposed God's original design. Adam became authoritarian, a jerk. His loving leadership had changed into domineering leadership. I read a note that said, Adam will also abandon his God-given pre-fall role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife, replacing this with his own sinful, distorted desire to rule over Eve. So Adam should now struggle with, or would now struggle with being this godly, loving, patient, good servant leader to bless Eve. His tendency would now be to dominate Eve, to put her in her place. God cursed the ground, which made Adam's work hard and frustrating. Amen. You're probably in a job right now that you're like, come on, crazy people everywhere. And then he said, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The curse of death is real, my friends. What's wrong with your marriage? What's wrong with my marriage? Sin. Your sin. My sin, apart from God's grace, the judgment of God is on us because of sin. Apart from the grace of God, every day our sin works from within us to destroy our marriage, to suck the life out of it. This is your story. This is my story. But there is a greater story. 
There is a story of hope. There is a story of rejoicing and restoration, a story of redemption and reconciliation. There is a story of true love, and this story has the power to breathe life into your marriage, vitality into your marriage. This story is the single, single-handedly the greatest love story ever told. Number five, the gospel is the only thing that can revitalize you and your marriage. The gospel, within the curse of the serpent, God gave the gospel for the first time, the hope of a coming seed or offspring that would rise up to conquer sin, Satan, and death. God said to the serpent and Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan hoodwinked humanity, but he wouldn't woo and destroy them all. God would put enmity between humanity and Satan. He would get some, but God in his sovereign plan and grace would raise up one seed, one offspring, one man to crush the head of Satan. He shall bruise your head. Through that one man, many offspring of the women would be saved. Many would find their greatest joy and pleasure. Many would see their marriages healed. That one offspring of victorious restoration is Jesus Christ. He is the seed that vanquishes evil, evil and liberates men and women and revitalizes marriages and transforms family and brings great joy and hope and peace into broken homes through his amazing grace. The problem of sin is infinitely serious and destructive. It will kill you and your marriage. But Jesus Christ is infinitely powerful and gracious, sovereign over sin, and by His grace and Holy Spirit, He can change us from the inside out. He can heal our marriages. He can add life and vitality and joy so that God gets the glory and we get our greatest joy. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are what will revitalize your marriage. The more and more your spouse and you love and adore Christ, the more you will love and adore each other. It just works that way. The the two greatest things that you can do for your marriage is repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone to save you and give life to your marriage. I'm going to give you six quick things to end, just very quick. I won't say much about each one. Simple things that you can immediately do to begin to see God's, God revitalize your marriage. Your marriage will not revitalize without these things. You, 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 they are that serious. You cannot see healing and joy in your marriage without these six things. They must be part of what you work on. So do them if you care about your marriage. Number one, hate your sin. You must despise your sin or you'll never truly repent and change won't come. See sin for what it really is and hate it. Number two, confess your sin. Your marriage is in trouble if you are not openly confessing sin to God and your spouse. Confession should be a regular part of your married life. Number three, pray together for your sin. Love each other by praying for victory and healing. God says that that prayer is powerful as it is working. Unleash the power of prayer onto your marriage, onto your sin. 
Number four, forgive your spouse for their sin. You see, forgiveness is so beautiful, it creates this safety, this environment, so that you can confess and pray together. Don't take this lightly. If God has forgiven you through Christ for your infinite treason against him, then I think you can forgive your spouse for whatever little tiny sin, as horrendous as it may be, is against you. You understand that? Infinite sin against God. How we've been wrong is so minor in terms of what God has done. Serious, needs to be dealt with, but I think we need to forgive. You see, if you don't forgive your spouse, God won't forgive you. The Bible's just that clear. I think you want to forgive. Create that environment. Give them the blessing of forgiveness. Number five, trust and treasure Christ for forgiving your sin. Jesus died, my friends, so that you could be forgiven of your infinite sin. You are forgiven through him. Let me say it again. Jerusalem Church, take heart. You are forgiven through Christ, paid for in full. You will not suffer the punishment for your sin that you deserve. You are forgiven. So rejoice and adore Christ for giving you that unbelievable gift. Number six, walk by the Spirit in victory over your sin. Commit your entire life to putting sin to death in your heart and walking by the Spirit in victorious obedience to everything that Jesus taught. Don't take any commands lightly. Bear some fruit, my friends. Show that your repentance and faith are real and bless your spouse by obeying God. If you try to revitalize your marriage with your own effort or tactics, you'll just get frustrated Only the gospel can bring new life to your marriage. Only the gospel can heal. You can't control your spouse, but you can take responsibility for you. Do these six simple things, and you yourself will be stepping toward God and perhaps a completely revitalized marriage. I see that the time is growing late. Tim, I think we need to throw an audible with the song because I really want to do this, or with the songs coming. I really want to do this. I want to do a corporate confession of marital sin. And I want to just park on some silence for a while. And some of you might be like, you know what? Silence makes me uncomfortable. Great. That's awesome. I hope you squirm because I hope the Holy Spirit honestly works in your heart to convict you of sin and that you'll make it right with your spouses, that you'll take some time maybe this week or beyond to really lay it out there and to work through it with forgiveness, to follow these six steps. So I'll watch the clock. I doubt it will be more than two minutes, but two minutes of silence can really give you a lot of time to think and can give room for the Holy Spirit to convict you. So let's just park on this for a little bit. I'm just going to sit down here and not do anything weird, but... We're just going to uh, pray and confess sin to God. You don't need to do it out loud, obviously.
Father, we, <clears throat> we are in desperate need of your grace. Marriage and family are so, so important. God, for our church, for our culture, for our society, we see brokenness and a wake of destruction everywhere we look. And so, God, I just pray that in these quiet moments before you that your spirit would convict us of our sin, that we would take care of it because God, Jesus, and the cross can completely heal and bring restoration, revitalization, reconciliation, can bring rejoicing. And so I pray that the gospel would go to work this week, that this sermon would, uh, the truth of, of Genesis 3, would penetrate deep into our hearts and that we would own up to our own sin, stop running from it, confess it, and find incredible forgiveness and joy and freedom in Christ. Do something amazing in the marriages of our church. Thank you for being so awesome, God, and for not casting us off when we completely made a mess of Eden, but instead you sent your only son to live a perfect life, die on the cross, raise again three days later, conquering sin, Satan, and the grave. And he ascended and he sits at your right hand, and if we look to him and trust him, then he will clean up our mess. He has paid for it in full. We just need to trust you and love you and look to you as the power giver for our marriage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.